I ask if you could please stand with me as we read God's word together. Um, Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes and receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for the building of his church and the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Triune God, as we approach your holy word, we praise you for all that you have done to effect and to accomplish our salvation. And we praise you that, that you have set us apart from before the foundation of the world to, to be your people, to be your church, to, to be, Lord Jesus, your bride. And we praise you, Lord, that you have accomplished everything that we need to do in order to enter into eternal life with you. There's nothing that we could do to add or to take away from this great salvation. We praise you, Lord, that you have, in, in your sovereign wisdom, you have left us here with work to do. Lord, you've left us here to glorify your name, to, to preach the gospel in word and in deed, to show that we are different because the life that, that we live, we now live not to ourselves, but to you. And Lord, you've not left us here to try to to. to to, to figure this out on our own. You've given us your word to lead and to guide us, and you've given us your spirit, Lord, to guide us into the truth and to empower us to walk in the truth. So we pray this morning, that, Holy Spirit, that you would work in our hearts. You would help us, Lord, to examine ourselves in light of your holy word and that you would cause us, Lord, and strengthen us to repent of where we fail and to re to, to, to be encouraged and strengthened in our obedience. That you would be glorified in our midst, that your name would be exalted through your church. And that your kingdom would advance through your church. And all of this we know is in the power of your Holy Spirit. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning we are continuing our look at the nine marks of a living church from Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. And I explained last week how the, the church in Canada, at least the, the visible church, is on the decline. But of course we all know that Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But we recognize that, that many churches, many more churches are closing their doors than churches that are, are being planted. And we know that, that of those churches that remain, really precious few can be called healthy. In the context of, of my study for my, uh, for my, my doctoral work, um, myself and a brother, we, we entailed to, to look at, at all of the churches in a 10-mile radius of, of this church. And the things that the thing that specifically they were looking for was churches that hold to the inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of God's word. Now I recognize that there might be more that I'm not aware of that are, are or even churches that are doing better than I was aware. Of, but we only found a handful at that time. There's only six in a ten mile radius that were consciously holding to the inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of this world. Six, and that was out of again at that time at least the ones we were aware of. Sixty churches. Very, very, very troubling. A lot of, of these churches are, are declining or dead because they're not looking to God's word for an understanding of what church should be. Mark Dever, in his excellent book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, identifies nine criteria that reveal the health of a church. And 
you know, we, we need to not think that we've arrived. We need to continue to examine ourselves in, in light of, of those marks. And these are just recapping. Um, the nine marks of a healthy church are expositional preaching, biblical theology, a, a biblical understanding of the gospel, a biblical understanding of conversion, a biblical understanding of evangelism, a biblical understanding of church membership, biblical church discipline, concern for discipleship, and biblical church leadership. And I asked you last week, and I'll ask you again, what, what do those marks have in common? The Bible. Eight out of nine of those marks point directly back to the Bible. And then the ninth, the one, only one where it's not explicit, concern for discipleship, could easily be called a biblical understanding of discipleship. I don't know why they didn't do that, but, but certainly a, a biblical understanding of discipleship because, because the, the Bible clearly talks about, about discipleship. It's a biblical concept and it's a biblical requirement. So then the, the nine marks of a healthy church all point to the first mark of the living church that we're talking about in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, dedication or devotion to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2, 42. The apostles' teaching, along with the word of the prophets, is the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2, 20-22 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being himself the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in order for, for a church to not just be, be healthy, but for a church to actually be alive, it must be grounded in the Word of God. And the rest of the marks of a healthy church and of a living church flow on from that. So clearly the Bible determines whether a church is actually healthy. <clears throat> Being grounded in God's word is vital to the health of a church. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 states, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So then if Fidelity to the word of God is necessary for the health and life of a church. A lack of adherence to God's word allows disease to enter a church. Until infection leads to organ failure and death. But even worse, many churches have consciously and actively rejected God's word of what the church should be. Not Again, there, there can be a omission, there can be, can be drift, but there are those that have out and out rejected God's word. And, and in, in some cases, not just tacitly, but, but actively they have rejected God's word. And they may even do this while claiming to follow the scriptures. They explain away or deny the gospel or other fundamental Christian truths doing a hermeneutical dance to make the Bible say something other than what the Bible actually says. Direct rejection of biblical authority will kill a church quickly, effectively slitting the church's throat, causing its lifeblood to spurt out. Those who rejected God's word have rejected God. So if the nine marks of a healthy church are diagnostic to help to determine whether a church is healthy, the nine marks of a living church presented here in Acts 2, 42 to 47 are a diagnostic tool to help determine whether the church is actually alive. Now these marks are, are, are not presented in, in Acts here as, as commands. It's a, this is a description of, of what took place. It's, it, Luke is describing for us what, what was going on on the day of Pentecost and following. Now, but each of these are actually commanded elsewhere in Scripture. But at this point, again, Luke is simply stating what took place. He's describing the newborn church. This is what happens when men and women are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit. These are the marks of living church because these are the marks of living faith. The 120 men and women who were filled with the Holy Spirit were, were joined after Peter's sermon on Pentecost, were joined by 3,000 more who were also regenerated by the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So the church was born and its members' lives, both individually and corporately, were radically different because of the work of the Holy Spirit. So again, last week we looked at the first four marks of a living church. Dedication to the apostles' teaching. Dedication to fellowship. Dedication to the breaking of bread. And dedication to the prayers. And that they're all there in, in verse 42. And then the, the last five marks are here in verses 43 to, to 47. So the final five marks of a living church, at least the ones that are presented here, there are others. But awe, mercy, praising God, favor, and growth. Awe, mercy, praising God, favor, and growth. So it's these five marks of living church we're going to examine this morning. Now, I've just spent a little more time talking about the the first mark of the living church because it's so vitally important to everything else. The next three from verse 42, devotion to the apostles' teaching, uh, sorry, devotion to to breaking of bread and fellowship and, and the prayers all flow from adherence to God's word. We are one because we are one body and one spirit, just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. And when we talk about this, this one, here, here uh, Paul is speaking about the universal church, so, so we are, are one with, with brothers and sisters in, in different churches and, and different denominations, who might even might differ on, on some secondary and tertiary issues, but, but according to the, the fundamentals of the Word of God, we all agree. So biblical teaching is vitally important, but it, it also informs our fellowship. It, it tells us how we ought to live together. Our, our common faith is the focus of our fellowship. And our body life reveals that we are truly alive. When, when Luke here speaks of, of the, the, the breaking of bread, he's referring to the Lord's Supper, to Holy Communion, where we, we celebrate the, the Lord and we celebrate each other around the table of the Lord. This is also informed by the Word of God. Likewise, the prayers that, that Luke mentions here are likely refers to, to biblical prayers, especially the so-called Lord's Prayer, but more accurately, the, the model prayer or the, the pattern prayer. It's all informed by Scripture. But the nine marks of the living church don't stop there. The, the final five flow from the first four. Again, especially from the first mark, dedication to the apostles' teaching. Without the nine marks of a living church, a church cannot be called alive. It cannot be called a church. Yet we need to recognize, as, as James Boyce explains, the church in, in Acts 2, 42-47 is presented as a model church, but this does not mean that it was perfect. A church can be alive, but far from perfect, including this church. A few chapters on, we're going to discover just how far from perfect it was. The church had had hypocrites in it, as our churches, and even our church and all of us at times are hypocrites. It had doctrinal errors, as we at times also will have doctrinal errors. It certainly had sinful human beings, as Boy says, of all types, as as our church does as well. Including, primarily, the man standing before you here this morning. Without the nine marks of living church, again, a church, though, cannot really truly be called, not just, just healthy, but alive. And yet we cannot sit here and self-righteously claim that we have arrived in any of these marks. As the popular but but often misunderstood and misapplied Latin slogan says, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda Secundum Verbum Dei. Anybody know what that is? The church reformed is always reforming itself according to the word of God. The church is reformed but is continuing to reform according to the word of God. Now that doesn't mean that, that we're laying again the foundations of the doctrine, but it means we're constantly going back to the word of God to examine our doctrine and to examine our life in light of that doctrine. Right? That, that, that slogan has been used for all kinds of aberrations saying that, 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 that theology is evolving. Okay, theology doesn't evolve. If something is new theologically, it's usually 
almost always heresy. So we're going back to the, the historical faith once for all delivered to the saints. That, that's what it means to be always reforming, reforming ourselves in light of revealed truth, established truth. And so we also need to be always reforming, reevaluating how our faith and practice lines up, lest we fall into mere formalism. Having biblical doctrine, even good biblical doctrine, without true and living faith. Having all of our theological T's crossed and our I's dotted without true worship of a life or a life lived in conformity to the truths we profess. We need to diagnose ourselves according to the nine marks of a living church. We need to examine our own worship and body life. How are we doing? What areas do we need tweaking? And what areas do we need a radical overhaul? So then, let's, let's continue. The fifth mark of a living church is awe. Awe. Look at that beginning of verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The, the word that is translated awe here is the same word that is trans, often translated fear. Luke here is describing the holy fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the, the holy reverence for God and for his glory. Do you have that holy fear of the Lord? You know, when you see people with, with t-shirts and a picture of Jesus saying, Jesus is my homeboy, that is not fear of the Lord. Jesus is not your homeboy. He's not your buddy. He's almighty God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. The God-man. The one before whom every knee will bow and, and every tongue will confess He is the Lord. This is the fear of the Lord. Do you have that? Do you have holy fear of the Lord? Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You can't even take the first step in Christianity without holy fear of God. In fact, it is the, the holy fear of God that, that often is, is, is used to, to bring conviction in the life of a, of a sinner before they begin to realize that, that, that they're, they're naked and exposed before the holy God. And they must flee to, to Christ from the wrath to come. God is a consuming fire. This mark, holy fear of God, is, is also grounded in the word of God. Just, just let's turn for a moment to Isaiah chapter 6. There's many places you could, you could go to see this, but, but that's, that's the first one that probably would come to many of our minds. Here we see in Isaiah chapter 6 that Isaiah was, was somehow, in his heart and mind, transported to the throne room of God. And he saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so this, this here, this, this holy fear of the Lord is, is grounded in the holiness of God. Because when we begin to understand who God is, we realize that he is holy and we are not. And then, and then what happens? And again, this happens initially in the life of an unbeliever, but it happens in all believers as well. We, we see our sin. We, we see our, our weakness. We see our rebellion, our wickedness in the light of the holy God. And look at Isaiah's response. Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the, the Lord of hosts. He's not saying, look at how much better I am than, than all these other people around me. He's saying, we're all undone. We're all exposed before the holy God. But then the angel tells him, in verse, no, in verse 6, he takes a tong from the altar and he, he anoints 
He anoints his mouth with it. In verse 7, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. This is a promise of the New Testament, the promise of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And so Isaiah realizes that he's been forgiven. Again, this is all under, under the fear of the Lord. And what is his response? As the voice of the Lord says, whom will I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah cries out, here I am, send me. So then this, this holy fear of the Lord is, again, it, it's, it's all wrapped up in, in one of, of understanding that and seeking the, the holiness of seeing the holiness of God. See, seeing that, that we are, are guilty before the holy God, but immediately as Christians going to the gospel and knowing our forgiveness in the gospel, through the gospel, and then the response of obedience, of, of love and worship, of, of reverent service of the Lord, that's what the holy fear of the Lord is. And I see that here. I see that in many of your lives. And again, it's, it's not there all the time with any of us. But I, I see it and I see growth in it. Praise God for that because that's, you didn't figure that out. I didn't make that happen in, in you, let alone in myself. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of true believers. Again, this is something that we need to consciously continue to cultivate. To continually ask God to, to do that in our hearts through the power of His Holy Spirit. To remember that, that we have the same Holy Spirit that those in the new church had, the newborn church had. The same Holy Spirit effectively working the same salvation in each one of us, confirming us into the image of Christ. And so ask God to do that in us. If you, you, you can see, it's not really great here in the, in the, um, in the ESV in this sense. He says, um, and fear and awe came upon every soul. I, I think here the NASB is actually better it reveals that this is ongoing. The verb shows that it's, it's, it's actually ongoing. And so I think it's better translated that, that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. They kept feeling a sense of awe. It's not a one-off. It's not a one-shot deal. And again, we recognize there's an ebb and flow in this in our lives. But, but our lives should increasingly be characterized by that holy fear of God. So we need to wonder then, well, well what was the cause of that awe. Well, again, for starters, it came from the Holy Spirit's work in their hearts. Right? Like, like the rest of, of what Luke is describing here, their, their holy fear of the Lord is the result of the Holy Spirit's work in their hearts. The, the Holy Spirit enabled them to see a, a spiritual reality that they had been previously blinded to. As Simon Kistemacher explains, a, a sense of awe filled the hearts of all believers because they experienced the nearness of God in their midst. Again, God was already there. But now their spiritual eyes open, they realize that God was there. And so then we, we wonder, well what, well, what did that experience of the presence of God entail? Well, some commentators say that it's because of, of Luke, what Luke describes next in the, in the next part of verse 43. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. They're saying that the, the, the awe was the result of the, the wonders and signs done by the apostles. Now that's possible. I'm sure that, that, there, that there was awe that resulted from what they had seen. But notice that Luke mentions the wonders and signs after the awe. Right? If Luke was saying that the wonders and signs caused the awe, wouldn't he have reversed the order? Right, right. Saying that the apostles did wonders and signs, and wonder came upon, and wonder came upon, and awe came upon every soul. So I think, again, I could be wrong here, but but I really think that that, that Lucas here referring to something bigger than, than than just response to the 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 signs and wonders that they were witnessing. Brothers and sisters, that there there will there there will be a focus on the wonders and signs done in the book of Acts. We'll, we'll see that in the next passage, where the Lord uses Peter and John to to heal. The, the lame beggar. We're going to look at that next week, Lord willing. But here in Pentecost, and, and really throughout the book of Acts, the wonders and signs is not the focus. The wonders and signs is not the focus. If, if, and again, these, these things are, are, are wonders to us. They, they, they should be, but they're not the focus. Not the focus of Acts. Don't be distracted by the wonders and signs. Notice here, 
Who did the wonders and signs? The apostles. The apostles did the wonders and signs. It wasn't the whole church that were doing signs. So the, you cannot say that, that, that wonders and signs are, are, are necessarily evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit, as, as some of our Pentecostal brothers would say. Now, there were others besides apostles who did wonders and signs, like men like Barnabas and Philip were, were not apostles, but they clearly performed signs. But, but there's no sense that the signs were normative, Again, or that signs were a key sign that someone was filled with the Holy Spirit, or even that signs were a focus in the early church. Wonders and signs were not and are not a tenth mark of a living church. They're not. You can't get there from Scripture. As you saw with Pentecost, as we'll see next week and throughout Acts, that the signs were only a small part. The performance of the signs led to a proclamation of the word of God. The performance of the signs really led to the proclamation of the word of God. Sign, proclamation. Sign, proclamation. We've seen that already in Pentecost, and we'll see that throughout Acts. This was especially important during the apostolic era before the completion of the New Testament scriptures. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so the, the signs of a true apostle really showed the apostolic authority as those have been specifically commissioned by Christ as his eyewitnesses, which is one of the other marks of an apostle, having been, been an eyewitness of, of the ministry of Christ and particularly of his resurrection. The office of the apostle has not continued. There are no men who are qualified as apostles anymore because nobody can have be an eyewitness to the, the, the life and, and death and, and resurrection of Christ anymore. Neither have the signs of an apostle continued. However, the awe should still continue. The awe should still continue. Are you awe-filled? Do you keep on feeling a sense of awe of that holy fear of the Lord? Are we as individuals and as a body characterized by the holy fear of God? Now, we don't see the, the, same, the same wonders and signs, right? We, we don't see the wonders of, of the lame walking and of, of the blind receiving their sight and the dead being raised, at least not physically. But we do see the lame walking. We do see the lame walking. We see that we see people who, who are given or given newness of life and walk in the newness of life. People who were were unable to do anything to please God are now walking in the power of the Spirit of God and glorifying God. We see the blind receiving sight. We are the blind who have received our sight. Our eyes have been opened to spiritual realities. Things that we disbelieved, we now believe through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We have seen the dead raised. If you are here this morning as a Christian, you are one who has been raised from the dead. Buried with Christ and raised with Christ. And now again, walking in the newness of life with Christ all through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that fill you with awe? That it is truly awful. It's, it's awesome in, in the truest sense of the word. May we all be filled with awe. May we, like Isaiah, be conscious of the fact that we dwell in the presence of Almighty God. That we've been forgiven our many sins and granted new life in Christ. And may that result in fervent devotion and service to Almighty God. Let's pray to the Lord to fill us with a sense of awe of Him. He will do it. Again, we can have that, that same sense of awe. We haven't seen this, the same things, but we've seen equally wondrous things. And we have the same Holy Spirit who has filled them. Sixth, the rest of these I'll, I'll, I'll take a little bit more quickly. The sixth mark of a, of a living church is mercy. 
mercy. We spoke about the fellowship in, 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 verses, uh, in verse 42 and, and 44 and also 46 last week. That the church was, was together and they had all things in common. They, they shared their possessions. In verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them, sorry, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. But as I explained last week, this was not an early form of communism. Okay? Communism is state-imposed sharing based on the assumption that no one has the right to personal possessions. That's communism. As James Boyce says, that communism is compulsory. Therefore, it has nothing whatever to do with generosity. But the early church was generous. They, they were motivated by love for God and for their brothers and sisters, to, to, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to, to share what they had. Those who've experienced God's tremendous generosity are motivated to generosity with others. Their fellowship was so deep and so rich that they did not feel the need to hold on to what was theirs. And I've seen this here in our body as well. I've seen people just, you've blown me away with with the generosity that you have experienced with with each other and and with, with me and my family. Praise God, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives. Doing what you could not and would not do on your own. In the early church, and in this church, people love their brothers and sisters more than their stuff. In other places in the New Testament, generosity, is, especially within the churches, is presented as evidence of a living faith. James 2, 14 to 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right? The, the one who is, is willing to let his brother or sister struggle and suffer in their need, does not have living faith, John is saying. Or is James rather saying. Similarly, 1 John 3, 17 and 18, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother and sister in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. So here it goes into the command. He lists it first as an evidence of being truly saved, this, this generosity with others, and then commands that they walk in that. So we need to ask ourselves, how, how can we grow in, in, in loving each other? How can we do this? How can we grow in loving each other in deed and in truth? Again, I see this. It's, it's wonderful in this, in this small church. Being generous with each other is, is a good start, and, and I see that here. True generosity pours itself out in, in love and service, especially towards your church, church family, without the requirement of reciprocation. Right? A, a good test of, of true generosity is how you respond in your heart when others don't reciprocate. When others maybe even take advantage, don't even say thank you. You know, I was reminded of, of my, my church in Louisville and when I was in seminary and it was coming up on my, my last semester, and, uh, and things got really tight financially. Uh, I, was, I was waiting for, uh, for a check um, from my, my previous employer, my, my final check, which was for, for a large amount of money that, that would have really covered the rest of, of my last semester, but things were really tight. And I had coffee, I had the Passover for coffee, and, and it was explaining the situation to him, and, and uh, he said, well, you know, can, can we as a church, can we help you? You know, can we do something for you financially? And I said, well, you know, I think I'm okay. Like my, my rent is paid. My, my, I've got food in the, in the, in the cupboards. Um, it, I think I'm going to be okay. The check should arrive within a couple of days. And, and I've never forgotten what, what, what he said to me. He said, don't rob us of the opportunity of blessing you. Don't rob us of the opportunity of blessing you. He was saying it was for them, it would be, you know, the, when Jesus says it's better to give than receive, he's not, he's not making that up. That's not hyperbole. It really is better to give than receive. And he's saying that they wanted the blessing of giving. And now in that case, I really didn't need the money. I mean, the, the check did come within the next couple of days. But, but I, again, I've never forgotten that lesson. 
As Paul exhorts us in Galatians 6.10, as we have opportunity, let's look for the opportunity. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. Right? Our, our first priority is, you know, they say charity begins at home. It becomes in our church home. Being generous with each other is, is important, it's, it's, but it's, it's a good start. As those who have experienced the generosity of God, as those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, let's look for the opportunity to bless others, especially in the body, and, and especially in those who, who can't or, or don't reciprocate. Ask God to help us to do this, and he will. The seventh mark. The seventh mark of living church is praising God. As we talked about in verse 46 last week, they, they daily attended the temple together with glad and generous hearts. And they, they, they daily met in homes together and, and ate together. And this was the context of, of their corporate worship. Do you see that there at the beginning of, of verse 47? Praising God. Now, again, they were praising God in the context They're praising God together. They're worshiping God together. Now, of course, when we we think about worship, the the first thing that that comes to our mind is is music, right? Is worship music, and that is one important part of of our worship. And so as we think about worship, of course, the the most important thing is the content of the music, right? Or the, 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 the lyrics of what we're singing. Does it, does it glorify God? Does it point people to the truths of his word? That, that's paramount. That is non-negotiable. And again, this is, it, it must be grounded in the word of God. And so then true worship as such is, is exuberant. It's, it's engaged. It's joyful. But again, we come back to the fact is, is it grounded in the word of God? If it's not grounded in the word of God, it is, well, it might be worship. But if it's not grounded in the word of God, it's not worship of God. It's not how God requires us to worship him. There are a lot of, of dead churches that have many of those things, but, but they do not have the most essential one. Their worship is not grounded in the word of God. Remember Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman in, in John 4.24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. And this, this leads to an important uh, issue regarding worship as, as outlined in what's known as the regulative principle uh, of worship, the regulative principle. Essentially, this, this principle holds that God regulates in his word how he wants us, how he commands us to worship him. We, we can't just worship God in any old way. And I remember seeing a, as part of a worship class in seminary years ago that video of a, of a church in New York City that, I think I've used this illustration before, that, that was doing a Lord's Supper service, and I'm not exaggerating, but this actually happened. The, 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 those who were, were leading the, the Lord's Supper service were dressed up as clowns. And, and there was no words. They were, they were honking horns. They were trying to show some form of, of celebration. Man, that's blasphemy, okay? That is blasphemy. The Lord demands that we worship him and the Lord demands how we must worship him. And we discussed this years ago when we, when we looked at the second commandment. The, the second commandment forbids the, the use of images in worship. You, know, you must not use pictures and, and statues as instruments of worship. The, the 1689 London Baptist Confession is helpful here, developing the principle saying the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. A.W. Pink explains this similarly. In the forbidding of images, God, by parity of reason, prohibits all other modes and means of worship not appointed by him. He says every form of worship, even of the true God himself, which is contrary to the diverse or is contrary to or diverse from what the Lord has prescribed in his word. 
So whereas the first commandment says you, you cannot worship the wrong God, the second commandment says you cannot worship the right God in the wrong way. So it's paramount that worship is grounded in the word of God. But even when, when the content of, of worship is good, I've commonly seen people who are, are focused in, in preference, in preference of, of music style that really ignores the content and is really not, not focused on loving and serving others. I've seen people, and it's, this is a bit of a, of a of generalization, but I've seen people, usually younger people, who crave contemporary worship music and dislike the old stuff. Versus on the other side, usually, again, a, 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 a generalization, usually older people who, who want hymns and show disdain for what's new. We need to recognize that, that true fellowship leads to true corporate worship. True fellowship leads to true corporate worship. And I recognized that. So when I was, was serving as an, as an elder in Australia, I really recognized that the worship wars were, they were armed and dangerous on both sides. And so as a, serving as an elder, one of, one of the things that I did was, was coordinated mission, missions trips to, to an Aboriginal community. And I rec- deliberately and intentionally recruited younger people and older people, because I wanted these people to serve together shoulder to shoulder so that they would grow in, in love and appreciation for one another. And that would motivate them to seeking to value and to love and to serve each other so that, that was, you know what, I, I'm not really into that style of music, but it's not about me. Does it praise God? And, if, and, and I'm... I want to be blessed by it in the same way that you're blessed by it because I love and value you. So God is central and, and you're putting your brothers and sisters first. And, and that's, I don't know whether, whether I succeeded in that. Frankly, I think that the, uh, the, the contemporary worship won and, and drifted further than that. But I just want us to stop and think about what we are doing when we gather together for worship. We are here to worship God. Together, we get to glorify the all-glorious God. We get a foretaste now of what we're going to be doing for all eternity. We we get to to join with the heavenly beings who, who never cease day and night to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, Revelation 4.8. We, we get to cry out now with the 24 elders as they fall down before him who's seated on the throne, as they, they cast their crowns before him, declaring, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created, Revelation 4.11. We get to do that today. That, brothers and sisters, is what we are here for. So worship is certainly what we do when we gather together. Sunday is the day that is meant to be set apart for worship, uh, away from the distractions of of work and, and worldly endeavors and pleasures. But worship is more than just singing. And it's more than just Sunday. It's all of life and it's every day. Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything in the name of the Lord. And Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Again, if you're not doing that at all, you're not even a Christian. If we're not doing that all, we're not even a church. But are we individually and corporately seeking to do that, seeking to grow in our worship of the Lord, to glorify his name together? Again, a church that is not truly worshiping God together is not a true church. It's not truly alive. We need to stop and to examine our own hearts. Just think about how you've responded to our time singing praises to God together this morning. 
this morning? Were you distracted by other thoughts? Was your heart engaged? Were you wishing for, for more old hymns? Or are you wishing for more modern songs? Were you distracted by the form and ignoring the content? Were you truly worshiping God? I think we need to recognize that we all need to grow in this. And we all must not rely on our own resources. Remember that you have been filled with the same Holy Spirit who filled those new believers on the day of Pentecost. Go to God's word and do a study of worship. I really would challenge you to do that. Sit down, especially in the book of Psalms. Sit down and, and do a study. Write it down on, on what worship looks like in the Psalms. And ask God to, to do that in your heart and in the, the hearts of, of your brothers and sisters, to do that in our body. You know, I want, I want to challenge you to do that. And, and if you do that, please come and, and, and talk to me. And, or talk to Pastor Joshua. I'd love to hear what, what, what God shows you in his word about what true worship is from his word. And ask the Lord to fill you and to fill us all with a heart of worship. Eight, the, faith, the eighth mark of a living church, favor with people. Luke says, Luke says now that the new church had favor with all the people. Now we take a step back and, and think about Luke and his, his, his really spirit-inspired, but just wonderfully gifted narration. Luke is really a master storyteller. And we've seen already in, in Acts that Luke draws intentional parallels to, between the birth of Christ and the birth of the church. And we see many parallels throughout throughout Acts, even as, as Acts draws to a close, parallels with Luke's gospel account. But, but here specifically, the narrative of the birth of the church parallels the narrative of the birth of Christ. The testimony of the favor with others in the early, to the early church parallels Jesus having favor with God and man at the end of Jesus' infancy narrative in Luke 2.52. So, so Luke is, again, intentionally drawing a parallel to, to the, the new church with the, the birth of Christ. What happened in both cases is those who on the outside recognized the work of God. They recognized the worth of God in Luke's gospel account, in the life of Jesus, and in Acts, the work of God in the life of the new church. Those outside the church recognized and respected what they saw in the lives of these true believers. They saw the work of the Spirit in them to love each other and to love those outside the church. And so then the mark of a living church we're focusing on here is that a living church seeks to love God and to love your fellow man. As Craig Keener explains, whereas the, the church's, or so rather the Spirit's empowerment for preaching had been effective as we saw in Acts 2.41, the Spirit's empowerment for eschatological living, though less explicit in the text, is also effective. Now we're going to discuss the effect in a few moments. But, but what he's saying is there was an effect. The, as the Holy Spirit worked in the, in the lives of those in the church, it had an effect on those outside the church. Now, of course, there are going to be some who will not like us because of our message. Right? Think about, about your interactions with, with those outside of the church. Are, are they offended with you? Or are they offended with your message? We need to be very careful to, to let the gospel be the offense. To, to, to seek that we're, we're not going to unduly offend those outside of the church so, so as to effectively close the doors of evangelism to those outside the church. We recognize that, that our, our primary responsibility, again, is, is, is inside the church for the mutual upbuilding of the body, but we also have responsibilities for evangelism outside of the church. And, and we need to be careful not to let our actions undermine it. You know, I've, I've shared the gospel with people as a jerk. Okay, I've been, I've been at times jerkish in my gospel presentation. And so by the way that I shared the gospel, I, I offended them unduly by myself, not because of the gospel. Now, I pray that by God's grace, that, that God in his, in his word and his mercy and the power of his spirit will, will overrule my, my weak and, and sinful attempts. But I still have responsibility for my actions. I hope that that's not the case for you as well. We know that some people are not, are not going to like us because of our message. Yet Proverbs 16, 7 says that when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies 
to be at peace with him. Now, we know, again, that that's not always the case. The Proverbs are, are not promises. They're, they're, they're principles. Okay, they're, they're general principles. But that is, it is often the case, but not always the case. Many of our brothers and sisters are facing horrible persecution even today. As Jesus warned his, his disciples in Luke 21, 17, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But again, may we never be thought ill of because our, of our sinful behavior. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you have favor with those outside the church? Think about, about your, your co-workers, unbelievers in your family, Unbelievers in your neighborhood, can they recognize, even if they, they think you're, you're a fool for believing in Jesus, do they recognize that your life is different? You know, praise God that, that, that we as, as a family, and as a church family, we have a, have a good reputation uh, in our neighborhood, in, in the neighborhood that this, this church is, is situated. Well, praise God for that. And, that. and that's not just because of us and our family, it's because of you as well. Because you don't drive like maniacs down the street you know that you're you're not you're not that when we do work days it it and we we show love for each other when we're kind and we 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 you guys have helped we've we've shoveled driveways of of some people in our in our neighborhood that this is ways that that the lord gives helps to give us favor with our neighbors as we seek opportunities to to love and to serve god you know we as a family have really intentionally sought to do that to develop friendships with those in our neighborhood to seek Opportunities to love and to serve them, to shine the light of the gospel among them. So, so the question for you is, do you have favor with the people in your neighborhood? This is really, this is one of the, the qualifications of an elder in, in uh, 1 Timothy 3.7. That there is favor with outsiders. And again, those, those qualifications of an elder aren't just the qualifications of an elder. They're, they're just, just what it means to be a Christian. But an elder is held to a double account for living that kind of life. Do you have favor with the people of your neighborhood? And, and what are you doing by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to gain that favor? Even among those who soundly reject the gospel. Do, do, you, do you show love and hospitality to, to others? You know, your, your love and hospitality often will open the door for the sharing of the gospel. So ask yourself, what, do, what does God want to do through your witness in word and in deed? Just watch and see what, what he does, how he, how he gives you favor with those unbelievers around you. Finally, the ninth mark of a living church, growth. This passage finishes, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This mention of being saved here seems to be another reference to, to Joel 32 that, that Peter had referenced in Acts 2.21. Saying this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, that, that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This, remember, at this time, remember the context of where this was taking place. This was taking place in, in Jerusalem among, amongst many um, diaspora Jews. And so this was, this was still the Jewish remnant. The, the church was still at the, the Jerusalem phase of its ministry. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the church grew, as we've seen already, not only, in, not only in depth, but also in breadth. Right? The church grew in breadth. Not only does the living church grow in sanctification, but a living church also grows in number. Healthy sheep multiply. Healthy sheep multiply. This is directly tied to the favor that the, that the church had with the outsiders. The witness of their lives led to opportunities for the gospel with their mouths and the Lord saved people and added to their number. As Ben Witherington explains, these early Christians were characterized by having glad and sincere hearts that prompted praise of God and goodwill among the local Jews in general. The result was that daily God added those who were being saved to this community. Its presence and witness were infectious. We need to recognize that it's the Lord is the one who is doing the adding, right? 
It's the, the Lord is the one who's making converts. This highlights the, the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. You have a responsibility to preach the gospel with your words and your actions, confident that the Lord will add. As J.I. Packer writes in his excellent book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, C.H. Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths together, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And Spurgeon replied, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. Friends. Packer, Packer explains, this is the point we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and man's responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They're not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends and they work together. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The scriptures teach both, and so we, by God's grace, embrace both. Friends, this is not a church growth technique. This is not pragmatism. We're, we're not concerned about church growth, at least not the growth in breadth. Now, of course, we want to see many added to the church, especially new converts. And, and praise God, the Lord is doing that in our midst. We had three baptisms this, this summer, and we have, we have three more who are going through baptism material right now. We need to focus on, on what the Lord has called us to do and trust that he will add to our number according to his sovereign plan. Now, we live in a, in a different context from that, that church in, in Acts chapter 2. At that time, there was, there was only one church. There, there was only one church in Jerusalem. There's only one church in the whole world. But now there, there's other churches, even in our city. We praise God for, for faithful churches in the city. Now, of course, we want people to leave dead churches, but, but we especially want new believers to join us and to, to be taught the word and to be discipled. These are the kind of people who will be a good witness for Christ with their actions and their words. And the church will add, will be added to according to God's sovereign plan and his sovereign timing. So have you been active in your evangelism? Have you asked the Lord to give you opportunities to, to tell others about Christ? And, and to, to tell people, I don't, I don't know about you, but I find it much easier to tell people the gospel and to tell people what, what God has done in my life than, than to tell them what, what, what he could do also in their life. To, to, to include the imperative of the gospel that they must repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. That gets a lot harder. May God empower us to, to do this for his glory and for the building of his church. Have you prayed for a church's witness? May we all spur one another on to, to love and good works, Hebrews 10, 24. And as we, we walk through the book of Acts, may the example that we see here spur all of us on to love and good works. May, may we do so confident in the fact that the same Holy Spirit who was at work in the first church is also at work in ours. As John Polhill suggests, Luke's summaries, and especially this one here, presents an ideal for, for the Christian community, which must always strive for, constantly return to, and discover anew if it is to have any unity, if it is to have the unity of the Spirit and purpose essential for an effective witness. And John Stott describes the first church as a learning church, a loving church, a worshiping church, and an evangelistic church, as a place of spiritual growth and spiritual praise, a place that is relational through met to met needs, through enough to met needs, to engage the culture, and share Christ. Brothers and sisters, this kind of church is a living church. And by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, this church is a living church. May he help us to grow and to, to grow in, in breadth as we grow in depth. For the glory of his name, and for the building of, of this church, this individual church, and for the universal church. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, what a privilege we have to participate in the building of your kingdom. Lord, left to ourselves and our own devices, we, we would not be able to do anything except make a mess but we're confident in the power of your Holy Spirit at work in your people. You have made us alive 
individually as Christ has, have, has made and are continuing to make this church alive through the same Holy Spirit that first made us alive as individuals. We pray that you would continue to show forth Christ's life through us. Help us to live out the gospel in our actions, to proclaim the gospel in our words. We pray, Lord, that, that you would use our, our studies in the book of Acts to, to spur us on, Lord, to faithfulness in, in that which you called us to. We want to see your name glorified. We, we want to see sinners saved. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.